The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. The passage that was just read for us from Acts 7 helps prepare us well for where we left off in Exodus and today, we'll continue in Exodus chapter 5. And so, if you are using a pew Bible, that's page 56, page 56, or you can turn to Exodus 5, as now we pick up the narrative of what God is doing through the book of Exodus. And in today's teaching, we'll see God pull together some strands that have been kind of loose through the first four chapters. Remember, Moses had to almost be dragged back to Egypt, <laughs> cajoled, nearly kicking and screaming. But now how will God's servant face obstacles from God's enemy? There's much you and I can learn from that. The second strand is God's people are enduring harsh slavery and they're crying out to God. How will God respond when his people cry out in suffering? There's a lot we can learn from that. And then the third major strand is this one. We will now finally come face to face with Pharaoh through Moses. And to give it away a little bit, he'll respond very obstinately to God. And how does God deal with those who are proud? Those who oppose him. So the three strands that are starting to be pulled together in today's text are these. God's struggling servant, you might be there today. God's suffering people calling out for deliverance, you might be there today. Or man's opposition to God, God forbid we could be there today. So in today's text, those three strands are pulled together under this umbrella. It's actually the question Pharaoh asks in anger. Here's the umbrella. Who is the Lord? Who is Yahweh? That's the title of today's sermon. Who is Yahweh? Who is the Lord? And if you have the bulletin from today, there are five uh, ways that I outline the passages that we're going to look at, but don't worry if you don't have it. They really climax in the final and fifth point. If you have it, here's the first one. Man arrogantly opposes God. And that's really all of chapter 5. Hopefully you are in Exodus 5. If you're in the Pew Bible, page 56, look in God's word with me now. Exodus 5, verse 1. Afterward. All right, so Moses has come back. He's met Aaron. The initial response is worship. Now they got to go to Egypt, though. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Don't skip over that in verse 1. This lets us know that the purpose for the deliverance is for the worship of the Lord. So salvation then is for God's glory. They're not being delivered just to be delivered. They're being delivered so that they can do what they were made to do. Praise the Lord. That's what's at stake here. Now see that in verse 2. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord? And the Hebrew here is Yahweh all throughout this passage. So who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice? Most commentators, I think, are correct to say that Pharaoh's not asking a question to gain information. He's asking a question to dismiss this challenge to his own authority. Pharaoh doesn't really want to know who Yahweh is. His point is, who cares who he is? I'm not listening to him. So who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. 
Remember, Exodus began in chapter one with the new king of Egypt who did not know or care who Joseph was. Now we have the new king of Egypt, Pharaoh, who does not know or care who Yahweh is, who the Lord is. This is the key issue of this passage. It's the key issue of the book. Who is the Lord? But notice the reason he rejects the Lord is because he refuses to obey him. The Bible describes sin in many different ways, but don't miss this key part of sin. Sin is rebellion. You know, Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've all gone where? To our own way. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? I'll live how I want, thank you very much. Sin in its heart is rebellion. And Pharaoh is now letting the Lord know that he will not obey the Lord. Throughout the book then, God will answer Pharaoh's question. Pharaoh says, who is Yahweh? And for the next Many chapters, Yahweh is going to reveal exactly who he is. And in fact, that is the very point of the book. God will say this repeatedly throughout Exodus in chapter 6, verse 7. He says, I will take out my people so that they will know that I am the Lord. In chapter 7, verse 5, he says, I want the Egyptians to know that I am the Lord. Chapter 8, verse 22, he will, he will meet out the plagues so that they will know that he is the Lord. Chapter 9, verse 14, he will complete the plagues so that they will know that he is the Lord and there is none like him in the earth. Chapter 10, verse 2, God says this, I will deal harshly with the Egyptians so that you will know that I am the Lord. But man angrily opposes this Lord, the Lord who reveals who he is in justice and in salvation. And so now in verses three through nine, Pharaoh responds by dismissing God and his people. Moses warns him in verse three, God is the kind of God that can bring pestilence and sword, but Pharaoh doesn't care. Verse four, Pharaoh tells him to get back to work. And then notice verse nine, if you look with me in God's word, Exodus five, verse nine, Pharaoh says, let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to these lying words of Moses and this Yahweh. Pharaoh now makes life more miserable for God's people. In short, Pharaoh's response has been this. He has scoffed at the name of the Lord, who is this nobody that I don't need to obey, and he's made God's people's lives more miserable. God has, Pharaoh has resisted divine authority and been malevolent to divine community. Ultimately, Pharaoh has put himself in God's place. I want to explain a little bit what's happening historically so we're not confused in what's happening in the book of Exodus. In Egypt, the Egyptians believed that Pharaoh was a god. By office, whoever was in the office of Pharaoh was treated as divine. We have Egyptian recordings that say this, in the person of Pharaoh, a superhuman being has taken charge of the affairs of man. So Pharaoh thought of himself as a god. How could he answer to anyone else? But also there's a play on words that Pharaoh uses to show that he's defying the Lord. At the end of chapter 4, God said to his people, I want my people to come out so they can 
worship me. It's the Hebrew word abad. And then in chapter 5, Pharaoh uses that same word to say that he wants the people to work for him. You see the Pharaoh is saying this, Yahweh thinks the people are his workers. No, the people are my workers. Something else happens in the language if you look at it carefully. In chapter 5, verse 1, when Moses and Aaron speak, they speak on the Lord's behalf. They say this, this is what the Lord says. But would you look down in verse 10 of chapter 5? Pharaoh says, this is what Pharaoh says. You see? The Lord may have his say, but I have my say is Pharaoh's attitude. It's vital that you understand this because the book of Exodus is revealing the answer to his question. Who really is Lord? Is the Lord the creator, the sovereign one, or is the Lord man and his own might and his own desires? This question is not only the key question of Exodus, it's the key question of life and the key question of history. In fact, when the Lord Jesus comes, there are all these questions over who he is. C.S. Lewis summarized it this way. Either Jesus is liar or lunatic. Danny Aiken added legend. He's either liar, lunatic, legend, or Lord. Throughout the Gospels, in fact, Jesus has shown his Lord. Remember at his baptism, God the Father speaks audibly, this is my beloved son. Listen to his voice. At the transfiguration, Jesus reveals that he is God's glory in flesh. His very name means the one who saves. Emmanuel means God with us. And yet Pharaoh arrogantly asks, who is the Lord? You know, it's interesting. When you know the Lord, you no longer ask, who is the Lord? You ask, who am I? In Psalm 8, King David writes this in verse 4. What is man that thou art mindful of him? In verse 1 of Psalm 8, David begins, The Lord, his name is majestic. See, the issue really isn't what a creature who may live around 100 years thinks. The issue is what is the eternal transcendent God revealed himself to be? Will we see him for what he is? Will we respond to him for the worthiness of worship that he alone has? Pharaoh will not. And so through the book of Exodus, we'll see in Pharaoh's life a lesson that's very important for us. When I exchange myself for the Lord, I destroy my soul. When I put myself in Yahweh's position, I put myself under Yahweh's just judgment. So before we go any further, let's do a little self-examination to try to answer this question this morning. Who or what is actually Lord in my own life. Now, throughout Exodus, we'll see that whoever is the Lord has decisive authority, decides purpose, and ultimately gets praise. So honestly, in your life, if you have a decision that you need to make, what tips the scales? What is the factor that drives which way you'll go in your decision? If you're thinking about what your life is for, what it would be successful as deemed by the end of it. What would decide that? And when you think what's worthy of praise, you're starting to answer functionally, experientially, on the day-to-day level, what really is Lord? This is the question that Pharaoh struggles with, and it's the key question of Exodus. Well, now in chapter 5, Pharaoh makes 
life even more miserable for the Israelites by taking away their access to straw and still making them make the same amount of bricks. So if you look in Exodus 5, pick up with me in verse 17, please. Exodus 5, verse 17. This is Pharaoh speaking. He said to God's people, you are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go sacrifice to the Lord. So he accuses them of laziness. Verse 18, go now and work. No straw will be given to you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. Verse 19, the foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. Howard Voss writes about what the conditions would have been at this time. He explains that to work in the hot Egyptian sun, temperatures exceeding 100 degrees, wearing only at most an apron. We have historical records of men whose hands were torn to ribbons, whose kidneys failed, who died of dehydration, heat stroke, and the like. These are the conditions now that God's people are in. Look now how God's people respond. Look in verse 20 and imagine you're Moses. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh and they said to him, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Did you know that sometimes obedience does not bring immediate blessing? Did you know that? Have you ever experienced that obeying God in the short term stinks? Do you know sometimes it does? Don't miss that Exodus is a pattern for you and I. In Psalm 106, the writer says that the Exodus shows how God saves. Don't think you're reading a book about an ancient people that don't have relevancy to you. This book is the pattern of how God saves all the time. These are the steps God does when he is saving. Therefore, when we read Exodus, we should realize this very important point. When you punch sin, sin punches back. When you obey, when you step out in faith, normally speaking, the immediate reaction is negative. When we step out in faith for God, often we receive immediate external pressure. Sometimes we even find internal pressure. This is why Philip Ryken writes this. In the same way that the Israelites had to take orders from Pharaoh, we have a fiendish slave driver who tries to get us to make bricks without straw. Sin is the harshest of taskmasters. Sin demands more and more from us while giving us less and less in return. The man who lustfully indulges in his fantasies becomes less happy the more sex he craves. The more the selfish woman gets, the less content she grows. Satan never loosens his grip. He's always busy tightening the chains of our captivity. As Jesus said, whoever sins is a slave to sin. You know what's interesting? God has come to free them. And at first things get worse. And instead of saying, God, I know you can do this. I know you can free me. They go back to Pharaoh and renegotiate the terms of their captivity. Have you ever done the same with your sin? I don't think God can really deliver me from this, so maybe I'll just manage and renegotiate the terms. I don't think God can really complete the promise that he started, so maybe I'll just manage and renegotiate the level of difficulty. See, don't forget the question of the book is, who is the Lord? Is it the slavery or is it the Savior? That's the key question. But suffering weakens us. 
So look at Exodus 5, verse 22. Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Now, I would love to be critical except for the fact that I see myself here. (laughs) Lord, you told me that I could do this. You told me that you were going to do something great, and I've stepped out in faith, and it's worse. You didn't do the things you said you were going to do. Obedience often leads to short-term disappointment. Let me give you some true life examples. I'll share them as composites, but they're all based on real events. A young couple feels called to the mission field. Their parents don't want them to go. They take the step of faith. They bring their family over to the mission field. They get all the way over there. And then their son contracts a rare disease. And they find no converts and no fruit. And they come home three years later empty-handed. And their parents say, see, we told you not to go. An employee notices corruption in his company. It's very risky for him to bring this to bear. He does, at great cost to himself. And his company then decides that they don't need him anymore. A Christian living in their neighborhood, living on their cul-de-sac, finally gets to know that lady next door. And then one time they're out together in the backyard, and she takes that risk, heart pumping, hands sweaty, she shares the gospel. The neighbor listens politely and then at the end says, thank you for sharing that with me. I'm not really interested. And now for the next several months that they see each other, there's just this awkwardness. We're no longer friends. Now there's this strangeness between us. A woman who is single and wants to get married has been holding out for a Christian guy. Finally, someone who's not a Christian shows great interest in her. She likes that guy. She's interested in that guy. But in faith, she obeys the Lord and breaks off the relationship. And then years later, can't seem to find the person she's prayed for. An employee refuses to work on Sundays and is fired three months later. A mother does everything she can to raise her children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And 20, 30 years later, that child is far from God. What do we do when obeying the Lord is so hard and yet it seems to bear no fruit? Look at chapter 6, verse 1. But the Lord said to Moses, now. Brothers and sisters, it is great news when God says now. (laughs) That means that God has a time when he fulfills all that he's promised. We don't always see it in the near term. We don't always see it in this life. But there is a moment when God says, now I do all that I promised I will do. I love when God says now. Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of this land. Sometimes when we don't seem to see all the fulfillment of what God said he will do, we need to remember there is a day when God says now. Verse two, I want you to notice that God keeps his promises because God is God. Verse 2, God spoke to Moses and said to him, here's the key phrase, right? I am the Lord. Pharaoh said, who's the Lord? Yahweh says, me. 
I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. You might be thinking, wait a second, in verse 3, God says Abraham and Isaac didn't know my name, but he was called Yahweh before. What does he mean? He means they didn't get to hear now. Abraham knew God as a promise maker. Moses gets to see God as a promise keeper. See, in our life, we don't know if we'll get to see God say now in our experience, but we know that one day faith becomes sight. One day what we know in part, we know face to face. Brothers and sisters, whether or not you see it in your years here, you will see him then when he says, now enter your rest. Here he says to Moses, now's the time. Verse 5, moreover, I've heard the groaning. How long did they groan? Do you remember? 400 years. But now is the day of salvation. Of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, I have remembered my covenant. Praise God that God says now. And in verses 6 through 8, He shows us that he says now because he alone is Yahweh. Now in my copy, I've broken this down in a a graph, but you don't have a graph in front of you, so I'll try to make it as simple as I can. In verse 6, God says, I am Yahweh. In verse 8, God says, I am Yahweh. And in between that first claim and that last claim, he sandwiches seven I wills. Do you think the number seven is an accident? Seven I will. Seven things to show that God does what God does. Here are the seven. Ready? Verse six. Follow with me. He begins Yahweh. He ends Yahweh. In between are sandwiched the seven fulfillments that God does. Number one, I will bring you out from the burdens of the Egyptians. Number two, I will deliver you from slavery. Number three, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm with great hacks of judgment. Number four, I will take you to be my people. Number five, I will be your God. You shall know that I am the Lord who's brought you out from the burdens of Egyptians. Number six, I will bring you into the land that I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And number seven, I will give it to you for possession. I am the Lord. The most important thing that God ever says is that I am the Lord. Therefore, you can trust sandwiched in between God's character, the fulfillment of all of his promises. That's why there's seven. I will do what I said I will do because I am Yahweh. And notice how they are broken into categories. The first three are about redemption. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. The middle ones are about adoption. I will take you as my people. And the last two are about eternal security. I will bring you to the land that I have promised you. Remember, this is a pattern of the way God saves. He still saves the same way. He redeems. He adopts. He secures. Why? Because of us? No. Praise God. Because of him. The book of Exodus is a majestic act of self-identification. Yahweh is revealing that he is the answer to all our problems. Be encouraged this morning. It's not about who we are. It's not about our obstacles. It's not about our enemies. It's not about our fears. It's not about our failures. It's not about our difficulties. It's not about our chaos. It's about the Lord who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Yahweh is Lord. God is 
is the Lord that Pharaoh questioned and he will finish his will. So now Exodus 6 continues in verses 9 through 13. And brother and sister, tell me if you don't see yourself here. (laughs) Right after God said, I'm the Lord, I'm going to do it. Moses spoke to the people of Israel, but they did not listen because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Have you ever noticed how suffering clouds your vision? Life's hard. So you no longer see that the Lord is going to keep his promise. But now verse 10, so the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of this land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I'm on uncircumcised lips. Moses is still not ready to believe. Lord, I tried that already. Remember that time you told me to go and I went and he didn't listen? Are we doing this again? The Lord says, yes. Verse 13. This is what the Lord does when we are afraid to see him fulfill his work. He just reminds us who he is. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about the Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. All I can do, Moses, is tell you again, I am the Lord and I will do what I said I will do. So now go and trust me. And now we have one of the weirdest things in the Bible. Have you ever been reading through the Bible and then out of the blue there's a genealogy? There's a list of names? Why are all these here? This is a very important thing. When you're reading the Bible, don't just ask, what does it say? Also learn to ask this question. Why does it say it here? Why does it say it here? Don't genealogies normally go at the beginning or the end of the book? Why is it here? Why in the world is it here at the end of chapter 6, verses 14 through 30? Why put a genealogy here? Here's the answer. This genealogy shows us that Moses and Aaron are the great-grandsons of Jacob. They are the grandsons of Levi, the tribe that will be set apart by the end of the book. God is letting them know this. Hey, Moses, I know you're afraid right now, and I know this is an inflection point in your life, but from eternity past, I've been working all this out. I decided where you were going to be born, to whom you were going to be born, and just like I've set apart the Levites, I've set apart you, and I will accomplish my work through you. There are inflection points where we need to remember God does know what he's doing. He has ordained the whole thing. Even where and when we are is his plan. So now pick up at the end of chapter 6. Look down in verse 28. Moses now picks up exactly where he left off. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, I have um, circumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? If you have the bulletin in front of you, here are the five points. We're now building to the climax. Number one, man opposes God. Number two, God humbles the proud. Number three, God is faithful to his promise. Number four, man doubts God in suffering. This is where we are. But now number five, God sets apart a redeemer and ruler to judge the proud and save the humbled. 
Did you notice when our brother read Acts 7, Stephen calls Moses a redeemer and ruler. Really interesting. That's now explained for us in Exodus 7. Look in Exodus 7, verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God. Who's the redeemer and ruler? Who's the one who said seven times, I do this, 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 Yahweh. And yet he works through a redeemer and ruler. I've made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You'll speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, which I told you up front in chapter 4. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. That's the point. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them, Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. Now they're ready. God has set apart a ruler and redeemer. Moses will be like God, and yet Pharaoh will not respond. This is for God's glory. I want to come back to that. First, though, let's look at verses 8 through 10, because this shows us a preview of God's deliverance. Verse 8, then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, verse 9, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Now you might be thinking, why a serpent? What's the big deal with a serpent? I don't understand all this. Let me read you something from history. When a new Pharaoh ascended the throne, here's what the Pharaoh said in his inauguration. Ready? Here's what he said in his inauguration. O great one, O magician, O fiery snake, let there be terror of me like the terror of thee. Let there be fear of me like the fear of thee. Let there be awe of me like the awe of thee. Let me rule a leader of the living. Let me be powerful, a leader of spirits. So what did pharaohs do when they ascended the throne? They gave credit to Satan. They gave credit to the snake. Their faith was in the serpent. So why is God having the stick turn into a snake? Do you know the answer? so it can crawl on its belly. You remember Genesis 3, right? The snake originally has legs, walking upright, tempting Eve and Adam to disobey Yahweh. Now what does the snake do? Crawls like a disgusting creature slithering in the dust. God chooses a stick to become a snake to let Pharaoh's crown, which was encrusted with a cobra, realize how stupid and silly his faith is. His faith is going to fail because it's in the serpent. Do you understand now? Verse 10. Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and Pharaoh did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants and it became a serpent. Now verse 11. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers 
And they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts, which would be satanic arts, satanic power. Verse 12, for each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. At this point, you may be thinking, what? Everybody can turn their stuff into serpents. What do we possibly learn from this? But notice how the verse ends. But Aaron's Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Did you know Satan is powerful, but his power is limited? Satan has might, but it's never absolute. Satan is swallowed by the victory of Yahweh. Colossians 2 says this, You who were dead in your trespasses and sins... God made alive by canceling the record of debt that stood against you, disarming it, nailing it to the cross where he disarmed rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them. God's stick swallows Satan's servants. And yet, here we are again in verse 13. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened And he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. How does this keep happening? And what purpose could there possibly be in an obstinate, recalcitrant ruler? And the answer is God's glory. Exodus 10, verse 1. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants. God, why would you do that? So that I may show these signs of mine among them, so that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done to them, so that you will know that I am the Lord. We struggle and we wrestle with Pharaoh, who is fully responsible for his recalcitrance, and the Lord for his righteous judgment of Pharaoh through hardening his heart. But the answer is given by God repeatedly. God glorifies his name, even through those who oppose him. God's highest commitment is to his own name. Chapter 9, verse 16, he says he has raised up Pharaoh so that he can proclaim his own name. Chapter 14, verse 7, he says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that I will get glory over Pharaoh. We don't know this anymore. On Friday, I was driving home from church, and I was listening to the popular Christian radio station, which I'll be honest, I don't listen to very often. And as I was driving home, the song that was playing, I had never heard before. It was very catchy, though. And it said that all of the things the Lord has ever done, he has done with me on his mind. That was the chorus. With me on his mind. With me on his mind. Why did God do anything good that he's ever done? With me on his mind. Now, to be fair, there are some scriptures that tell us that God graciously cares about us. John 3, 16. God so loved the world that. We also have 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He made him to be... Sin, that we might not. We have 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, that we know the grace of our Lord, that though he was rich, for our sake he became poor. But did you know that there is a much, much, much higher motivation than me on his mind? The answer is the highest motivation on God's mind is God. Isaiah 48, verse 11 says this, for my own sake I do it. How should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. 
When Psalm 106 quotes the Exodus, it says this, when our fathers were in Egypt, God saved them for his namesake to make his mighty power known. The one great singular end of history is the glorification of God's name, not mine. God's glory is the reason that the exodus happens, and it is the reason that Pharaoh is hardened. This book is about God glorifying his own name because from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever, Romans eleven thirty six, Jeremiah 13, verse 11, God says, I have made Israel my people for my name, my praise, and my glory. The divine answer to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is the glorification of Yahweh's name. And hear this this morning. God will glorify his name, whether through salvation or judgment. God will make his name great, whether it's through saving those who depend on him or judging those who opposed him. Have you ever thought about it this way? God made his name glorious in Egypt in Genesis through Joseph's faith. But God's made his name glorious in Egypt in Exodus through Pharaoh's defiance. God will be glorified. The question for us is, will we find joy in his glory or sorrow in its defiance? See, God's glory never changes. Just our apprehension of it. God's glory can't be diminished. Just our appreciation of it. We can have great joy in God's glory, or we can have great sorrow in our rejection of it. But Pharaoh's question is really answered finally through God's Son. Who is the Lord? He is Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords. And Jesus' name will be glorified. We will either revel in Jesus as our blessed Redeemer to our eternal bliss, or we will despise Jesus as we bow to our righteous judge. Who is the Lord? He alone is King of kings and Lord of lords. The Redeemer and ruler that we need is the Redeemer and ruler who saves. Moses is set apart as Redeemer and ruler, but he never even makes the promised land because of his lack of obedience and faith. But Jesus is the Redeemer and ruler who has come to do his Father's will perfectly. At the cross, Jesus swallows the snake. At the tomb, the final miracle and sign is proclaimed. This morning I ask you, have you ever called on the name of Jesus? Do you have bliss in his glory? Why oppose in defiance the glory that is made for your good? If you're struggling this morning with thinking, well, how can God be for God? Don't you know that the reason we can rejoice that God will keep his promises to us is because he has a higher commitment to himself? The reason I can be confident God will be faithful to his people is because God never contradicts himself. God's commitment to his glory is the best news for us because the greatest gift God could ever give us is himself. So this morning, let me give you three reminders for us as Christians because God is committed to his own glory. These are the three takeaway applications for you as a believer. Here's the first. Christian, 
God does not need our strength, but he will use our weakness. D.L. Moody said this, Moses spent 40 years in Pharaoh's court thinking he was a somebody, 40 years in the desert learning he was a nobody, and then 40 years showing what God can do with a somebody who found out they're a nobody. Number two, because God is glorious, God does not need our pragmatism, but he will work through our faithfulness. God does not need our pragmatism. You know what pragmatism is? It's like when you think you have to secure the results, right? Moses is saying, they're not listening to me. They're not listening to me. God's saying, yeah, that's the plan. See, God doesn't need our pragmatism. I I can't get the result. How do I change the process? You don't change the process. You just faithfully do what God told you to do. Martin Luther said this. Why did God bid Moses to preach, although God himself promised Moses that Pharaoh would not listen to him? Is it not foolish to say to someone, preach when you advise them that they will not listen? Luther said, I would have refused such an assignment. Except that the only promise is this. God has entrusted Moses with his word, not the responsibility of softening or hardening his heart. God doesn't need our pragmatism. He will work through our faithfulness. But now number three, our final application as believers. Because God is glorious, if we submit to his will, he works great wonders through clay pots. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7, after talking about the glory of God in the face of Jesus, Paul says this, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. When we know that God is glorious, then we can have great expectations in what God will do when he says, now. Let's pray together this morning. Father God, not to us, but to your name be the glory. Release us from the defiance we see in Pharaoh because we know that defiance is in our own heart. We say, who is the Lord that I should obey him? We act as if we are sovereign. In Pharaoh's day, that was done through overt means. Today, in our day, it's done through subtle means. But we're just as guilty because we think that it's up to us to define our name, our identity, our purpose, and our future. We have forgotten, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. We are created so that your name would be seen as great. And that is the best news for us because our heart longs for something beyond this world. Our heart longs for our creator. It is good news for us that you, Lord, are committed to your own glory. Father, help us as Christians then to not fall into traps of pragmatism, of self-assertion, of trying to move the spotlight to our own advantage. Remind us, Lord, that you will do it, that you are able, and we just wait for you to say now, because when you do, you finish what you started. We trust you. We love you. In Christ we pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. 
That's E-B-C-R-A-L-E-I-G-H dot com.